Morning, friends. My name is Thomas, and we're going to continue in our series in Revelation. We're, we're nearing the end. If this is your first Sunday with you, or with us, we, we have been journeying through one of the most bizarre books in the Bible. It's the last book in the Bible, and it's a unique genre. It's written in apocalyptic literature, meaning that it uses vivid language, symbolism, and hyperlinks to the Old Testament story to help inform a persecuted church to know what God has done, what God is doing, and ultimately what God will do to bring an end to suffering and to bring the righteous kingdom for all of eternity. Today's theme in Advent is peace. We look back at the first coming of Christ, the first arrival of Jesus Christ, in which he came to bring peace between God and man through his sacrificial death and resurrection on the cross. And we long to see that realized for all of the earth, in fact, all of the cosmos, in which everyone, everywhere, and everything will experience the peace of God. And here near the end of Revelation, this story has been climacting to this point in which Jesus Christ returns, deals with evil finally, and establishes his good and right rule. Now, here we're entering chapter 20 of Revelation. And for those who have never been around chapter 20, I was informed after first service that all I did was confuse them more and more. (laughs) Perhaps we'll do better this hour, but probably not. I know what you have been longing for in this series. I've been reluctant to give it to you. Charts and graphs. (laughs) I bring them today for you to help at least understand in some ways how people view chapter 20 in Revelation. For in this chapter, there is mention of a thousand-year period in which Satan is bound, Jesus Christ is reigning. Then, at the end of a thousand years, Satan is released to deceive the nations, to gather those adversaries of God one final time to assault God himself, fails to do so, is defeated, death itself is defeated, the world is judged, and the eternal kingdom comes to be. You would think more people would agree on the sequence than they do. So we're going to do this. We're going to read it. We're going to spend a little bit more time than we normally do scholastically looking at different viewpoints of the sequencing and the schematics. And then we will see if we can sew up a unity amongst believers. Sound good? You're not thrilled. You're like, we came for baptisms. What's this? (laughs) It's the Bible. (laughs) All right, Revelation chapter 20. John says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, And bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And we all asked, Why? (laughs) Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. 
and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they, were to- they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then the scene changes to a great white throne room scene in which those who oppose God are judged. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Welcome to church. (laughs) We were like, man, I brought a friend today. Are you kidding me? Oh, man, there's always next week. Don't worry. (laughs) All right. So in this passage, we have a mention of a thousand years, the binding of Satan, kind of this blessed rule of Jesus Christ with the saints. Then there is a release of Satan, a defeat of Satan, and all of God's adversaries, death itself. Then there is a judgment, and then there is an eternal state in which he has his kingdom. And the question is, What is the sequencing of those events? And what is the schematic of those events? How does it all get put together? And would you be surprised that Christians have different views on this? People who love Jesus, love their Bibles, who are students of God's word, have different views. And there are three primary camps. One is called premillennialism. One is called postmillennialism. And the third is called amillennialism. And those prefixes, pre, post, and awe, are descriptions of when Jesus Christ returns in relationship to a thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus. So, to crack the code, pre simply means that Jesus comes prior to the millennial reign. Post means that Jesus comes after the millennial reign. Awe is how you would take like apolitical or apolitical or amoral. 
is negated, meaning that there's not really a millennial reign of a thousand years, but it's a figurative symbol of Christ's reign in heaven. Now, here's how the sequencing works. Are you excited for charts and graphs? Yes. yes. All right, I brought them to you. Merry Christmas. You can take a picture and you can look at it in more detail. We'll start with premillennialism. So on this chart, or I'll try to kind of walk it through on the stage, it kind of starts over here with the cross. Okay, Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, resurrected, which initiates what's called the, the church age, which is what we're in. The church age is when Jesus has commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. And in a premillennial view, from the cross, this exists until the return of Jesus Christ. And at that return, what happens is what's described in 1 Thessalonians 4, the church is raptured, caught up off the earth to meet him in the air as he descends to the earth. It's like a welcoming party. They go up, meet Christ, and then they're joining the party, those who are alive, with those who have already died with Jesus to come down. They bind Satan, this angel binds Satan, throws him in a bottomless pit, which initiates a thousand literal year millennial kingdom where Jesus reigns on the earth. And after a thousand years, unbeknownst to us, he's released to go and gather more adversaries for a final battle against God and his people. And he is defeated at the end of a, end of a thousand years and thrown in the lake of fire with all of those who dislike and hate God, and then the eternal state comes in. So that's a description of a, what's called a historical premillennialism. This is a view that was held by Arrhenius, who was a church father in Smyrna. This is a view that is held widely by historical Christians. For modern teachers, maybe you swim in some of their streams. This is a view that people like John Piper hold, Albert Moeller holds this sort of view. Uh, Vody Bauckham holds a view that is this. Now, the reason they get to a sequential view like this in a literal thousand years is, is indicative of how they read Revelation. And they read Revelation in a very chronological way, meaning chapter 20 happens after chapter 19. And what they would say is every time you see in Revelation the description, then I saw is equal to, meaning the same thing as, then it happened. So as John says, then I saw, means exactly, then this happened in this order. So chapter 20 opens up with, then I saw the angel coming down from heaven, holding this chain. So that's when it happened. So Jesus Christ, we've seen arrive in chapter 20. We've seen him defeat the beasts, those who have marked by the beast, those who are adversarial towards God. And now... After that event, you have Jesus Christ coming and binding up Satan for a literal thousand years. The other way in which they read Revelation is not only chronological, but literal in its numbers. And so as it's described, the church persecution of three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, those are literal, like you can start your stopwatch, you can mark it on your calendar, sequential, literally. And so you can just simply say a thousand years is a thousand years. It starts with the arrival of Jesus Christ. You can count the days and he will release Satan and then he will judge him and then the eternal state. Now, a 
challenge to this premillennial view that people will point out is at the end of 19, if they are sequential, at the end of 19, all of God's adversaries are destroyed. The beasts, the prophet, the, well, those who worship the beast, those who are marked by the beast, and just so you know, it ends with, and all the rest. Like everyone who's adversarial towards God is defeated. So who, at the end of chapter 20, when Satan is released, does he find to gather in Armageddon? And you would say, well, there were new people that were born in the millennial kingdom. And so if you hold to a premillennial view, one of the challenges is to account for who are these unbelievers in the millennial kingdom? And you have to believe in there's new birth and death after Jesus Christ arrives. So death and birth still exist into the millennial kingdom. Challenges, not impossible to answer, but challenging nonetheless. Now, an offshoot of historical premillennialism is one that has been very popularized in America, especially in the West, called dispensational premillennialism. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all of these. And classical dispensationalism, not progressive dispensationalism, but classical dispensationalism will also see the rapture of the church before a literal seven-year period. So look at the chart again. You can start over here on the cross. Jesus Christ crucified, dead, and buried. Church age. The church age ends not at the return of Jesus Christ, but it ends when the church is raptured from the earth to be with God in heaven for a literal seven-year period of great tribulation on the earth in which many people will come to know Christ. And at the end of seven-year tribulation, then... Jesus returns, a binding of Satan happens, and you have similar, a thousand-year millennial kingdom in which he is bound, then released, then judged, and then you have the eternal state. Those who adhere to a dispensational premillennial view are more modern. And so this view doesn't exist before the 19th century. John Nelson Darby brings this view that really captures the hearts of like Schofield, Moody, this is what you would see like Tim LaHaye teach. If you swim in the streams of like John MacArthur, this would be a dispensational premillennial view of the sequencing and schematics of Revelation 20. Now, the challenges are similar to the premillennial view as well as its more modern approach to Revelation 20 that is not historically what the church has held. Now, you go from a premillennial view, which means Jesus Christ is arriving prior to a thousand-year millennial reign, to a postmillennial view. Now, a postmillennial view views again, here's the sequence, Jesus Christ crucified, dead, and buried, church age. Now, part of the church age is the Christianizing of the world. And so the result of the church being on the earth and witnessing to the world, to all the nations is actually that the world becomes Christianized. And so at the end of the church age is this millennial kingdom. Now, it could be a literal 1,000 years, or it could be figurative. But really, the spirit-filled church through the work of Jesus Christ through the church brings in, ushers in this beautiful place of peace. The description of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning through the influence of his spirit-filled church, in which then he returns after that to bring in the kingdom and the eternal state. Now, adherence to a post-millennial view was really those who were 
um, experiencing the great revivals in the West and in America. So many Puritans embraced a post-millennial view. They just see, they saw God's activity being so great, thinking, man, if this is happening, if many people are coming to Christ, this is going to happen globally. And so people like Jonathan Edwards, they hold to a post-millennial view of the sequencing and schematics of the return of Jesus Christ. John Murray, the, the great Scotsman, held to a post-millennial view. A more modern person would be someone like Doug Wilson. So if you swim in any of their streams, read any of their literature, this is where they're coming from. Now, one of the challenges of a post-millennial view is it doesn't account very well for the, for the sequencing in Revelation chapter 20, specifically with the binding of Satan and the Christianizing of the world. In the sense of Revelation, when it speaks about kind of the persecution of the church, it seems like the church's influence in the world gets smaller and smaller, not greater and greater. In fact, we see that the witnesses, witnessing community actually dies, almost looks like it dies out in Revelation, not that the world is Christianized. It's one of the challenges, not impossible to overcome, but a challenge nonetheless. Now we get to an amillennial view. Ah, I mean, like amoral or apolitical, like outside this. It negates a thousand-year literal time and says that this is not literal in the sense of 1,000 sequential chronological years, but 1,000 in the sense of the, or the quality of those years. And so it reads Revelation in a literary sense, saying, okay, well, where else has the Bible use the verbiage of a thousand or a thousand years. And almost everywhere you look, it's used in a sense of quality. So you look at Psalm 50, where it says, the Lord owns the beasts of all, all the beasts of the forest and the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean that God only owns the cattle on a thousand hills? And if there's a thousand and one hills, he doesn't own those cattle. I would say literarily, biblically speaking, when it uses the idea of a thousand, it's speaking about the totality or completeness. So Song of Solomon, she has a thousand shields around her neck. Does she have literally a thousand? Or is it like talking about the fullness of her adornment? Or 2 Peter chapter 3, specifically talking about Jesus Christ's return. A thousand years are like a day to the Lord. And a day is like a thousand years. So the emphasis is not so much on the chronology of time, but the nature, the quality of that time, that God owns it. God's outside of it, but he's sovereign over it. And so an amillennialist will look at the binding of Satan as the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he came to bind Satan there. And the specifics binding is not his influence, like he still prowls around like a roaring lion, causing havoc. But specifically in 20, it says he was, he was bound that he could not deceive the nations, meaning that his influence to deceive the nations and gather them for an Armageddon is bound, and so that the gospel message can go out, which Amalus would say, look at the world. That's exactly what you see. The gospel message has gone out to all the nations, and Satan has been prohibited from deceiving the world and gathering them against God right now. That's his specific binding right now. And so this church age, for all millennialists, is the millennium, but it's a heaven reality. And so Jesus Christ has ascended and rules. When Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me, go make disciples, that's a description of his current authority over heaven and earth now. 
and we are commissioned to go share the gospel, and we know we will be successful, that hell will not be able to stop it because Satan is bound. And at the end of the church age is when Jesus Christ returns, and very similar to a historical premillennial view, when Christ appears, the church who is still alive will be caught up with him at the welcoming party and join him as he descends to the earth to then not bind Satan, but judge Satan and bring in the eternal state. Does it all make sense? <laughs> and if you follow an all-millennial view, there are many proponents of this. And so one is Augustine, who is a cornerstone of theology in the church, in the early church. The other amillennialists are, are reformers, like Martin Luther. You put John Calvin in this. Though some of these descriptions weren't really cataloged until the 16th century, they would adhere to this view. More moderns would be those like uh, Sam Storms, would be another teacher of an amillennial view. And so you can see that these views are held by reputable, God-fearing teachers, though they disagree on the sequencing. Now, one of the challenges to an amillennial view, so if you have amillennial friends, this is a really fun conversation to have with them. One of the challenges to the view is of this word resurrection in chapter 20, talking about those who are resurrected with Christ. And non-millennials will say that that resurrection is today, like you're, you have died with Christ and now you're reigning with Christ now. Well, the challenge is the word that's used here for resurrection is anastasis, which exclusively is used to mean bodily resurrection. And so it, can't, it has not been used and probably should not be used to talk about it as a heavenly or spiritual resurrection. So again... There are challenges and strengths to all the diversity of views. And what usually happens when I have a conversation like this with people is that they throw up their hands and they say, well, then who can know anything? Like if, if some of the people, the smartest people that have invested their life to this study have tried to look at this and they differ on how they view the sequencing and schematics of the return of Christ. What hope is there for me? And so they just throw their hands up and say, don't study at all, or they become what's known as a pan-millennialist, which is, it'll all pan out at the end, don't think about it much. <laughs> I would love to give you more hope than that, because I know we have a difference in our view of the sequencing and the schematic of this, even here at Calvary. But there is a unity of substance that joins all of these views together. That, those, that anyone who holds one of these views would agree to the substance of Jesus Christ's return. This is how we would describe it here at Calvary. This is our statement of faith on the return of Christ. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God, demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer for godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. The substance that everyone agrees on is this. Jesus Christ is returning bodily and visibly. When he comes, he destroys the destroyers of his good creation. 
judges Satan and all those who are adversarial to Jesus Christ and sets up the eternal kingdom, which reconciles all things in heaven and on earth, making them new and rewarding those who have loved and longed for his appearing, that they would be with him forever. Now, that is the substance in which every view believes. You cannot be an Orthodox Christian if you do not believe that substance, that Jesus Christ truly is coming, a second advent, a second arrival, and that will be bodily and visible to us, that the destroyers of this good creation will be removed, that Satan will be destroyed, that those who are adversarial towards God will be judged, and that he will reward those who love and longed for his appearing in the eternal kingdom of new heavens and new earth. We may disagree and see things differently in the sequence and schematic of it, but there is a unity in the substance of it. Another unity of substance that I think is important to recognize is that Revelation was written to, remember, seven churches, seven real literal churches, to encourage them to be faithful, truthful, and enduring in their witness of these things. And they were going to experience persecution and hardship. And their persecution and intense tribulation has been described in Revelation as three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. And you can either take that literally, chronologically, or you can take it literarily in a sense of quality of time. But think about that in juxtaposition of a thousand years. How small does three and a half years sound? Couldn't you endure hardship for 42 months if you knew that the reward is a thousand? That's a hundred times greater for those who are faithful. And there is no fear for those who are faithful. There's no fear of the judgment, the great white throne room, the second death. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus told one of the churches that the letter's written to. So Revelation chapter 2 Verse 10, he's writing to Smyrna, letting them know that intense persecution is coming to them. And he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You will come with me with crowns to judge. He who has an ear, she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, the one who is truthful, faithful, enduring to the end, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, is what he promises. The second death is we die physically. The second death is when we are judged spiritually for all that we have done. And those who reject Jesus Christ are removed from his good creation removed from life eternal. And so we get to the end of chapter 20, and Satan's judged, and the beasts are judged, and all the people are judged. You get to this throne room scene where books are opened. And there's one book called the Book of Life. And the description of the Book of Life is, is really the registry of citizenship. Like all the people that are citizens of a city would, would be written down in the book. That's the parallel. 
And everyone who belongs as a citizen to the kingdom of heaven are written down in the book of life by name. Like your name is found. Not, not which denomination you're in, what church you belong to. Do you individually believe in Jesus Christ? Now, I love the image we have in baptism this morning. This is, this is a baptismal tub that we've had several versions of this. This is the latest one. They don't last super long. But everyone who's been baptized in this tub has written their name on the outside in the last few years. That's cool to see the testimony of God's work in these individual lives. But more impressive, more important than having your name written on a Calvary Bible baptismal tub is to have your name written in the book of life. And you might be asking, how do you get your name written in the book of life? Can I write that in? And the answer is no, you can't. Only God can write your name in the book of life. It's his registry of citizenship. But the only way to, to have him write your name in is for you to say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my master. I want you to be my savior. I want to belong to you. I want to be a citizen of your kingdom now and forever. And he says, whosoever, no matter what you've done, whosoever, rich or poor, whosoever comes to me and professes Jesus as Lord of their life, believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, will be saved. And there is no fear of the second death. And so the gospel truth that I think we have here is an encouragement to the church, encouragement to believers, that no matter how hard life is right now, and I know for some of you, life is very hard. But the truth is, it'll never be harder than it is now. Eternal life is coming. You might have to experience three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days of persecution, hardship. But in light of a thousand years, just a picture of complete time or literally moving into the eternal kingdom, man, I can endure some things for a short period of time knowing that God is an extravagant rewarder of those who love him and long for his appearing. I think that's what's in Paul's mind when he writes to the church in Rome and he just simply says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. That's at the coming of Jesus Christ. I don't consider the sufferings of this present time worth comparing. It's not even close to the glory that will be revealed, the reward that will be revealed, the eternal life that will come at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, Christians have different views on the sequence and schematics of this. But the substance is this. When Jesus comes, he comes to bring his peace for the whole earth, for all of heavens, to restore what was ultimately lost in Eden, a perfect relationship with God and man and man with woman and with one another, delighting in each other, unfrustrated by sin in the cool of the day. It's a beautiful picture. That is our ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. And so what happens here really matters. What we do really matters. This is why I love our statement of faith. If you want to go back to the, the statement of faith, in light of his glorious return, 
It demands constant expectancy. Like we, we are expecting his return. We're looking for him. And as our blessed hope, it motivates us for godly living, to, to put off the things of this world, the habits of this world, for sacrificial, sacrificial service, that we serve one another, care for one another, bear with one another, and energetic. Like we're excited to share the gospel. This is gospel opportunity now for many people that are in our families, in our neighborhoods, at work, the places where we play, to hear the love of Jesus Christ, to ask Jesus to be the Lord of their life, that he might write their name in his book. This is gospel opportunity days, friends. So this is not time for passivity, but for excitement. And so as we close, I just want to pray a benediction over you. If you want to stand with us, I want to pray a benediction over you that comes from the book of Jude. Perhaps you close your eyes and bow your head. But this is a blessing I want to give you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And so, Father, I pray for my friends in this room. I pray that you would hold them fast in the midst of their trials. And Father, we pray that we would hold on to the substance of what Revelation teaches, that Jesus Christ, you're coming to mend every wound, to right every wrong, to wipe every tear, to remove the destroyers of our earth, to remove those who are bent on evil, to destroy death itself. And so, Lord, may we live into that today. In the mighty name of Jesus, we give you thanks. Amen.